0: everybody. Uh, welcome to this lecture. Welcome to the LSE, if you're not from the LSE. First thing to tell you, i say this or else I'll forget it, is that the hashtag is hashtag LSE Brexit vote, or without any uh, spaces. It's my great pleasure and privilege to introduce both my colleague and my friend, Professor Alan Sked. Uh, you all know because you're here that Alan is a political creature and in some ways it's I don't need to introduce him. He was the co-founder of the Bruges Group, he was the founder of the Anti-Federalist League which became uh, UKIP, he founded it in 1993. A recent BBC website said he founded it in a dusty room. I don't know why they know that your room was dusty, <laughs> but, uh, but actually it was a touch dusty. I, I have to admit it was a touch uh, dusty. And since then, he's founded at least one other political party, if not two. I'm not quite sure about uh, that. But of course, I, I know him not just as a political creature, but also as, as a colleague and as a very distinguished historian. Uh, Alan is a historian of Europe. He's a historian of the heart of Europe of the of austria of the austrian empire he's written four books on the austrian empire a book on 1848 biography of radetzky a book on med metternich and a book on the decline of the austrian empire and he's written three books on modern british history as well so from the lse perspective alan is speaking to you as a historian as well as a political creature And his lecture tonight is he's going to speak for about an hour and then there'll be some time for questions. And his lecture is on the case for Brexit why Britain should quit the EU. Uh,
1: Ladies and gentlemen, can you hear me all right? Okay, well, this will be partly politics, partly history. It's a mixture of the two. Uh, But as an international historian, perhaps it's incumbent upon me uh, to begin my lecture with an historical anecdote. Some 1,200 years ago, the Emperor Charlemagne sent a trusted friend as ambassador to the king of the Greeks, that is, a Byzantine emperor. The diplomat was soon a welcome guest at a Byzantine court, But one evening, however, when he was dining at the imperial table, there was a sudden intake of breath followed by a rising noise of protest which caused the emperor to interrupt his meal. He turned to the ambassador and said, Look, I'm terribly sorry, old chap, but it seems that you've turned over your meat in my august and imperial presence, and I'm very sorry, but this is something which in Byzantium is punishable, by death, it's, this is our custom, uh, but I can't do much by it. I fear your life is forfeit. Uh, the ambassador, however, was quite unshaken, and he replied, I quite understand, Your Majesty. I don't want to do anything to undermine the customs of Byzantium, uh, but surely, uh, as a condemned man, I can ask for one last request. And the Byzantine emperor said, of course, anything you ask will be granted, but I, I can't spare your life. And the ambassador said, well, that's all right. All I ask, he said, is that anyone present who thought they saw me turn over my meat should immediately, here and now, have their eyes guided out, at which point the emperor went round the table and said, mm, who saw this man turn over his meat and at the end, nobody confessed to seeing him turn over his meat. At which point, the emperor said, Look, I'm terribly sorry. It seems to have be been a dreadful mistake. <laughs> no one saw you turn over meat, your meat, so your life is spared. <laughs> I chose this anecdote because uh, the presence of mind displayed by Charlemagne's ambassador, it seems to me, is today entirely lacking among our own diplomats and politicians. How else can one explain uh, the negotiated uh, package uh, which David Cameron, for example, presented to the British British public as a diplomatic triumph? Had he gone to Byzantium, I fear he would have returned minus his head, as it was his so-called European partners, having having spent months dining and whining him, did the one-day equivalent and sent him home minus any real concessions. Indeed, his so-called reform package has already been forgotten and is no longer even discussed as a topic in the present referendum debate, so it's like 1975 all over again. Our poor Prime Minister cuts a rather sorry figure internationally. Absent at the peace talks with Putin at Minsk, nothing to say on the negotiations over Greece or Turkey, He even stands accused by his good friend President Obama of taking his eye off the ball and being responsible for the present mess in Libya, having eviscerated the British Armed Forces. He did, of course, have one diplomatic triumph according to the London Times. According to the Times, he prevented the EU from imposing a 5% tax on sanitary products. Can you imagine Winston Churchill coming back from such negotiations, I'll try and do my Churchill impression today honourable and right honourable members I have to report to the House that after days of very arduous negotiations with 27 heads of government in Europe, I have succeeded in demonstrating the international weight still carried by this country by preventing the imposition of a 5% tax on condoms this, then, is a measure of the global influence that the EU membership bestows on us. If Margaret Thatcher, in her dealings with the EU, the Soviet Union, and the Argentines, often resembled one of these lions in Trafalgar Square, David Cameron, I'm afraid, is more like one of the pigeons, occasionally capable of puffing himself up, but for the most part content to wander around in circles, nodding his head, and taking whatever crumbs of comfort he is offered by passing foreign visitors. Cameron's stock is all the lower in Europe since this referendum is deemed unnecessary. In fact, Cameron himself never intended there to be a referendum. He believed that the last election would result in another tory lib Dem coalition and that Nick Clegg would veto the proposal. Ah, but he won the election. But here we are. So what is the debate all about? What is the EU all about? It is, of course, a failed political experiment in supranational government designed to create a European super-state, the United States of Europe. There's no need to take my word for it. The official publication office of the EU has for years published numerous editions of a pamphlet entitled The Origins and Growth of the European Union, which states, quite straightforwardly, that the economic regulations for the common market, today the single market, are, I quote, quote, a transitional stage, a transitional stage to full political union, which will signal the end of the national sovereignty of all member states, National sovereignty, it says, will not disappear overnight, but it is quite clear it will disappear. Cameron and Osborne don't try to deny this, but claim instead that they will protect us from the process. One should remember in this context that during the 1975 referendum, the British government, in its white paper of that year, promised that the UK would always have a veto over any EU policy it objected to and that economic and monetary union would never come about. Well, we all know how that worked out. Today, Cameron has no legally binding agreement that any of his promises or the promises made to him will be kept and George Osborne even had to abandon his target of protecting the city from future legislation by the Eurozone. Poor George. George has never yet met a single target which he set as Chancellor. In 1973, when Britain entered the EEC, our annual annual economic growth in 1973 was a record 7.4%. Under George Osborne, it has now been reduced to less than 2%. Well, all I could say is I hope that his aim of succeeding Cameron as Prime Minister is another target that he'll miss. The Remain camp, of course, is utterly aware. The Remain camp is utterly aware of the essentially political nature of the EU, although it tries to obscure this with economic scare stories. And yet the basic argument put forward by Remain is that to trade with Europe, you have to be part of Europe. Now, just think about that for a moment. Nobody in their right minds says that to trade with China, you have to be part of China. That would be rather scary. Nobody says that to trade with Japan, you have to be part of Japan. (coughs) Nobody even says that to trade with the United States you have to accept the US constitution or that you need to negotiate an opt-out from accepting the dollar as a single currency yet to continue to trade with europe to continue to trade with europe the remain camp tells us that you have to continue to accept an eu passport eu policies an eu parliament an eu commission an eu high court of justice an eu diplomatic service an EU flag, an EU anthem, and soon an EU army. Why? Because the whole point of EU membership is not trade, is not the single market, but political union, as the EU's official document I quoted pointed out. Otherwise, what's the point of all these institutions? Gordon Brown, in an otherwise typically bombastic article in The Guardian a few weeks ago, tried to argue that the EU was simply about international cooperation. And for all I know, there may be other simple-minded folk, perhaps even here tonight, who actually believe this. But the same point has to be made about cooperation that has just been made about trade. You don't normally have to share a passport, constitution, parliament, supreme court, civil service, diplomatic service, flag and anthem just to cooperate with other nations and states. Nor do you need to pay £20 billion every year just for the privilege of cooperation. Suppose we wanted to cooperate with North Korea in the interest of nuclear disarmament. Would Gordon Brown really expect to share a passport, legal system, and all these other institutions and policies with Kim Jong-un in order to do so? Would he want to pay the dictator 20 billion a year for the privilege? I, I suspect not. So being a member of the EU really has nothing to do with trade or cooperation. We trade and cooperate happily with all parts of the world without requiring any political suicide pact, or even an annual fee of £20 billion. But that's what we get with the EU. The creation of the United States of Europe means the end of our national sovereignty. The true price of the single market is the end of our independence. Brexit, on the other hand, means simply the restoration of our independence, the restoration of normal democratic self-government, with a UK government alone responsible for the formulation of British policy and alone accountable to the British people through Parliament for the execution of its policies. And that's what happens in the world's greatest democracies. For example, in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, the United States. All of these democracies trade and cooperate with Europe normally as independent states and after Brexit, so too shall we. You don't have to be part of the EU in order to trade with it or cooperate with it. And people who maintain the opposite are fanatics, part of that group of true believers who view the EU with an almost religious reference bordering on the reverence some people give to the caliphate. My own view of Britain's relationship with the EU is rather like that of the Czech historian and patriot Palatsky, who famously said that Bohemia had existed before the Habsburg Empire and would still exist after it had disappeared. Well, Great Britain existed before the European Union and will still exist after the EU has disappeared. The British, after all, have never really been overawed by imperial pretensions. When Lady Blessington, for example, who had been mistress of Napoleon III in London, later met the insecure new emperor of the French along with his empress after his coup d'etat at an imperial ball in France, she replied to his question, ''Do you intend to remain long in Paris, lady?" With a devastating response, ''Yes, your majesty, what about you?'' When the aged Frederick the Great deliberately insulted the British ambassador by asking him how Tipu Sultan of Mysore could continue to harass British forces in India, he got the reply, oh, he's an aged Rui, your majesty, who used to attack his neighbours in his youth, but is now quite gaga, and today is no trouble to anybody. As I said before, they don't make ambassadors like that anymore. Fortunately, the other uh, nations of Europe have no great faith in the EU or its leaders either. Two-thirds of Germans want to get rid of Angela Merkel. Only 14% of the French support their president, François Hollande. 48% of Italians want to leave the European Union. The figure for France is 44% and Germany 34%. A majority of French and Italians want a referendum on EU membership right now. 49% of French electors voted no to the Maastricht Treaty. A majority of French and Dutch voted no to the Constitutional Treaty. Uh, The Danes had to be forced to vote twice on the Maastricht Treaty, and the Irish were forced to vote twice on both the Nice and the Lisbon Treaty. The EU is almost allergic to popular sovereignty. Remember, it replaced the elected premiers of Italy and Greece with technocrats. It crushed the elected left-wing government of Greece. It put sanctions on Austria after the Austrian Freedom Party joined a coalition government there. It threatened to put sanctions on Hungary and now on the newly elected government of Poland for carrying out its electoral mandate. Meanwhile, it operates under a system of government largely determined by an unelected commission, in cooperation with unconstitutional bodies like the Troika and the Eurogroup, not to mention the, the Council, the European Council, whose liberations are secret, and a Parliament whose MEPs lack the power to change anything after elections. Even the Parliament of Zimbabwe has an official opposition. The European one does not. The EU, moreover, is notoriously corrupt. That is why its own official court of auditors has refused to approve its accounts for an amazing 21 years running. If the EU were a trading company, it would long ago have been forced to cease trading. But, as have already shown, trade is actually not the raison d'etre of the EU. Its unpopularity in Europe is not due only to its notorious democratic deficit, but to the failure of its major policies. At the end of the last century, we were informed in its official reports that the opening of a single market with its single currency would herald a new era of growth and prosperity. Alas, exactly the opposite happened. Growth went down and unemployment went up. In fact, starting with the 1980s, EU growth went down roughly 1% a decade from 4% to nearly zero. The GDP level of the EU only recovered its 2008 level last month. Meanwhile, its share of world GDP has been an almost free fall compared to that of the United States. Since we joined, it's fallen from 37% to 17% of world GDP, and today unemployment as a whole in the EU is still 11%, on average, while in southern Europe it ranges from 10 to 20 percent. Youth unemployment there is between 20 and 55 percent. So little wonder, therefore, that uh, as many young people as possible are to the uni- emigrating to the United Kingdom. Growth here has been twice as high, and unemployment uh, half that in the Eurozone. But although immigration has been a boon to this country in the past in many ways, it is now clearly out of control and the electorate is rightly demanding that Britain should once again take command of it. That is only one of the many economic reasons why we would be better off detaching ourselves from this economic corpse. The Remain camp, however, illogically believes that we should stick with the cadaver blindly confident there is no chance of catching its various diseases. It also, for equally illogical reasons, regularly insults European states that are outside the EU, states like Norway, Switzerland and Iceland. Now, this is absolutely bizarre. Norway is the highest standard of living, not only in Europe, but in the entire world. Switzerland is in second place, but has sometimes been in first place. Iceland, despite its difficulties seven seven years ago, has outranked Britain and nearly all EU countries in such league tables. And all these countries adamantly reject EU membership, and no wonder, would anybody here tonight seriously exchange the highest standard of living in the world for those of present-day France, Italy, Portugal or Greece who in their right minds would swap the highest standard of living in the world for the permanent economic stagnation in Italy, whose economy has grown by only 0.2% a year since the introduction of the euro in 1999, where the unemployment rate in Campania is 53%, in Sicily 56%, in Calabria 63%, and where the banks are on the point of collapse. Who would swap it for the permanent Uh, depression in Greece that has lost 25% of its GDP since 2008 while all the time supposedly enjoying uh, the great advantages of being a full member of the EU. But you must ask yourself, why are these countries prosperous outside the EU? The answer, of course, is that they can make their own economic policies and free trade pacts. However, however, the Remain camp maintains that these countries are really all in some way dependencies of the EU, that they have to accept all EU regulations, we're told they have to do this by fax, and they also have to contribute to the EU budget. In fact, absolutely none of that is true. None of it at all. Norway and Iceland are a part of EFTA, the European Free Trade Association, and thereby, along with Liechtenstein and the EU itself, are part of the European Economic Area under a treaty agreed in 1994. One recent study discovered that Norway has adopted 1,369 300, 1, out of 1,965 EU directives, and just 1,349 out of 7,720 EU regulations, altogether therefore just 28% of the total acquis communautaire. Research by the Iceland Foreign Ministry and the EFTA Secretariat in Brussels, on the other hand, found that the percentage of EU laws accepted by EFTA countries as a whole is about 10%. Now, this is because EU legislation outside the single market does not apply to the EEA. Moreover, single market legislation can only be accepted by an EFTA state if it is first passed by its own parliament. In the United Kingdom, of course, such directives and regulations bypass parliamentary debate altogether and are rubber-stamped by statutory imp- instrument. The rejection of EU single market legislation in Norway is rare. But that is precisely because, under Articles 99 and 100 of the 1994 EEA Agreement, all such legislation must be considered at its very inception by both EFTA and EU member states. And the Commission is legally bound to consider the views of EFTA state experts before any legislation is drafted. Norway, for example, has regularly moulded key rules for the EU, including the Consumers' Rights Directive. So, in short, far from being dictated to by facts, EFTA states have practically a veto over draft EU single-market legislation. Hence, the viewpoint of EFTA states is usually incorporated into single-market legislation from the start, since otherwise it could be rejected by after state parliaments later on. Norway, for example, rejected EU attempts to break its postal monopoly for letters. And when in 2011 the EU Commission stated that offshore oil and gas production would be subject to new EU regulations, since offshore oil and gas had EEA relevance, Norway simply poo-pooed the idea and the official minutes of the joint EEA Parliamentary Council for the 27th of November 2012 read, the Norwegian government has taken the view that the proposed legislation by the European Commission falls outside the geographical and substantive scope of the EEA agreement. So the Commission's plans for oil and gas were rejected. Again, the famous banking dispute between Iceland and EU member states, Britain and Holland, despite the fact that the latter received full backing from Brussels, was decided not in the European Court of Justice, but in the EFTA Court of Arbitration and decided in Iceland's favour. Another point to remember is that EFTA members sit individually on global bodies like the WTO, the World Forum for the Harmonization of Vehicle Regulations, the International Maritime Organization, the Codex Alimentarius for Food Standards, and the Financial Stability Board for International Banking Regulations. And these are the real top tables, what many of the international rules are first set, and only then afterwards adopted by the EU. And in these institutions, at these top tables, all EFTA member states have an individual veto. The United Kingdom, instead, is represented, along with 27 other EU member states, merely by one EU representative, a nice lady child psychologist, I'm told, from Sweden. Once outside the EU, however, Britain would have a seat of her own at all these top tables again. It is important to realise that no EFTA-EEA country is forced to pay any membership contribution to the EU. Each of these countries choose which EU programmes, if any, they wish to support. Usually it's Erasmus or Development Aid to Southeast Europe. However, they're not legally obliged to pay for any of this. Britain, for her part, of course, cannot choose which programmes to pay into. She is simply charged for everything and anything. Finally, as already mentioned, the EEA agreement is limited to the single market. And so many highly significant sectors of EU legislation are excluded. And these include foreign affairs, judicial and home affairs, economic and monetary issues, trade agreements, taxation, customs, fisheries, agriculture. And but the United Kingdom, of course, is subject in almost all of these areas to supranational authority. Little wonder, therefore, the EU membership has been rejected in every single opinion poll ever published in Norway. At the end of last year, there was an overwhelming 72% of Norwegians against membership, and every opinion poll in Iceland over six and a half years has also had a solid majority against membership. The overwhelming majority of Swiss, meanwhile, who are not in the EEA, are equally happy with their existing bilateral agreements. Indeed, at the beginning of March this year, the Swiss government decided, after no less than 24 years, to withdraw its long-standing but unpopular application to join the EU. The lower house of the Swiss parliament had already determined this, And its proud reasons for doing so was that Switzerland could not abandon its independence and that Switzerland would not allow the European Court of Justice to overrule the Swiss Supreme Court. And the Swiss Member of Parliament whose motion in the Swiss Parliament ended the Swiss application after 24 years stated this is a clear and historical message from the Swiss Parliament to British voters. We wish you the Best of luck for Brexit, he said. These days, Switzerland calls itself Britzaland because Swiss voters back Brexit. And he added a big advantage of leaving the EU is to trade f- worldwide, making it easier and cheaper for British companies to sell their goods to the rest of the world. The boost to income, he said, would outweigh the billions of pounds in membership fees that Britain would save uh, if it left the EU. And it should be remembered that EFTA has no less than 35 free trade agreements outside the EU. So, the point of all this is that Western Europe, outside the EU, is a very prosperous, very happy and very independent place. Inside the EU, on the other hand, happiness, prosperity, independence are all in very short supply. There's massive unemployment, there's massive depopulation in places like Portugal, southern Italy, and even in parts of Germany. There's an unprecedented uh, migration crisis exacerbated, just like the economic one, by German dominance. Angela Merkel, having taken the initiative on her own to abandon the Schengen Agreement and welcome over a million refugees uh, to Germany then decided to impose quotas on member states who didn't want uh, any of these and who, where indeed the refugees themselves didn't want to go. And she's now threatening to fine these other states billions of euros if they don't comply. Not that Frau Merkel was actually all that compassionate despite her reputation. After all, it was quite curious. She made all of these poor people, including women, children, <laughs> invalids and old folk, walk the 1,000 miles from Greece to Germany as if Berlin had never heard of an airlift. Transport was only laid on later by states desperate to clear black logs of stranded people. But all of this was the inevitable consequence of a self-styled, post-national, post-modern, thoroughly incompetent, wannabe super-state which believed in soft power and pacifism And naturally, didn't bother to think of frontier defence or indeed any form of defence. Not that the UK inside the EU has been very different. Our incompetent Home Secretary, Theresa May, now presides over a situation in which our own border force has only three patrol boats to protect a coastline 7,700 miles long. Anyway, all over Europe today, the result is seizing political discontent, uh, not just Uh, giving rise not only to just anti-EU parties, but to racist parties of the far right, being elected sometimes almost as as a majority to parliaments in Greece, Austria, Cyprus, Hungary, and elsewhere. And this is a direct result of the failure of the biggest EU policies. Now, I don't want to, or I suppose I don't need to, return to the failures of the euro, it's plunged most of Europe into penury and unemployment. The famous workers' rights so boasted of by the Labour Party have proved quite irrelevant to the tens of billions of European unemployed. Larry Elliott, the economics editor, at the guardian, and author of a new book entitled Europe Isn't Working, calls them derisory. Nor of the recent waves of strike by French workers against the so called labour reforms of the so-called socialist president, François Hollande, proved much evidence of a worker's paradise in Europe. The euro has also failed to increase intra-EU trade. It's failed to replace the dollar as a reserve currency. It's made Germany dominant in Europe. It's caused political as well as economic divisions across the eurozone. And all this, together with the EU's security and foreign policy problems makes the EU akin to a failed state. In terms of foreign policy, the claim was often made by EU admirers is that the EU has brought peace. This is hardly true. NATO has brought peace to Europe. The EU helped bring war to the Balkans and has muddied the situation in Ukraine. It's supposed to have strengthened democracy, but tell that to Golden Dawn, to Jobbik to the EFEP, to the Front National, and all the other poisonous parties that now litter Europe. Remember, uh, we are in a situation where only the other months uh, the far right came to within 1% of bringing about the election of a national president from the Nazi Lager in Austria. But let me return to the theme of peace. The UK... Sorry, the EU of course, represents not peace, but pacifism. Most EU countries spend next to nothing on defence. Even David Cameron, after his 210 defence review, had to please the Americans by fiddling the figures of our defence budget by throwing in the costs of GCHQ and various intelligence agencies to scrape the 2% mark. Our own armed forces have been cut down to the 1930s levels and our new aircraft carriers, when they arrive, will have no planes to put on them. The Dutch are in an even bigger mess. One Scottish newspaper reported in August last year, under the headline, Bang Out of Order, uh, that Dutch soldiers had to make their own bang-bang noises when they were practising shooting because they'd run out of ammunition. (laughs) More seriously, it will be recalled that the Dutch government fell from power in 2002 as a result of a damning report into the failure of armed Dutch troops to protect 8,000 Bosnian Muslim men and boys in Srebrenica from being massacred by Bosnian Serbs in 1995 in the worst single atrocity of the Bosnian War. Germany has its own problems. Official defence documents... Leaked to the Bundestag in 2014, stated that only one out of Germany's four submarines was operational, that only 70 out of its 180 boxer tanks were fit for deployment, and that just seven of its 43 helicopters were actually flight-worthy. Operations in Afghanistan and Africa had broken down due to helicopter malfunctions. Meanwhile, the Pew Research Centre discovered that a majority of Germans would refuse to defend the Baltic states of Poland if Putin invaded. Pacifism, not peace. Pacifism is really Germany's (coughs) default defense and foreign policy. She lied about her constitution to avoid participation in the first Gulf War. She opposed the second, and she kept out of the uh, the Libyan intervention, Since, according to a leading financial newspaper, the Handelsblatt, she couldn't last six months without Russian energy supplies, she's desperate not to upset President Putin. She is therefore negotiating a second gas pipeline through the Baltic and has offered the Russians a sort of Eurasian greater co-prosperity sphere from Germany to Vladivostok. Meanwhile, Frau Merkel has become equally dependent on Putin's now-mortal enemy, the autocratic leader of neo-fascist Turkey, to solve her migration problems. Unfortunately, he recently ordered the shooting down of a Russian warplane, causing tensions in the Black Sea region, while he's been accused of double-dealing the West with IS. His country shares a porous border with the Islamic Caliphate and has a flourishing industry in black market passports. Yet part of the deal made with him by the German Chancellor, and now fully backed, of course, by uh, David Cameron, uh, is to allow 80 million tax, visa-free entry uh, into the EU, and accelerated uh, entry into full EU membership for Turkey. A policy, again, enthusiastically endorsed by the British government, despite what I think is the obvious fact, that Turkey is no more a European state than South Africa or Indonesia, and despite the fact, too, that President Erdogan, who has defined academics and journalists as criminals and terrorists, who stripped opposition MPs of the parliamentary immunity, who started a civil war in his own country for electoral reasons, and who has stated that the rule of law and democracy are not Turkish values, that this man is clearly a fascist. German defence and foreign policy is therefore a disaster. And Germany, unfortunately, dominates the European Union. EU migration policy already encourages terrorism, but the new deal with Turkey, if it survives, will encourage it massively further. The Americans, meanwhile, do what they can to protect Europe. They pay over 75% of NATO's budget in Europe, but if war were to break out in the Baltic or the Ukraine, there seems very little that even they could do to, protect, uh, to stop Putin in view of what is really a power vacuum constituted by the European Union. So membership of the EU hardly enhances our world influence. Economically and strategically, in fact, it is a disaster area. Predictably, however... The only reaction of Europe's leaders to these failures is to demand more of the same. President Hollande told British MEPs last year that the choice was either more Europe or to leave the EU. Last year, too, the the European Union's five presidents, it has five after all, drew up a report calling for the fiscal and banking union of Europe, a European treasury, and the mutualisation of debt. Immediately after the the referendum is held on the 23rd of June, we now know that the Commission is primed to demand a large increase in the EU budget and to uh, to submit uh, proposals for a European army in competition with NATO. And these defence measures are being deliberately kept secret from the British electorate. Indeed, the security surrounding the new EU army proposal resembles something like Fort Knox But the really astonishing thing about the Europhiles' belief that every crisis of centralization can only be solved by more centralization is that they actually, despite all the evidence, insist on this. Mr. Juncker is like the officer on the Titanic who, when the iceberg was reported to him, simply ordered, full steam ahead. The real problem, of course, is that the the whole concept of a united Europe is unnatural and historically misconceived. Europe is a state system, not a state. It overtook the rest of the world after the first millennium precisely on account of its disunity. Whereas the Ottoman, Mughal and Chinese empires became centralized and bureaucratized under religious orthodoxies Europe was never united. There was always a balance of power. Christendom became divided between Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant states. Even during the Middle Ages, Europe was a state system. And within this system of competing states, there was competition in and cross pollination of political and economic ideas, technologies, and technical advances across the continent. Global historians refer to this process as the European miracle and examples of it in practice abound. Persecuted Jews in the Middle Ages and Huguenots after 1685 could emigrate from one state to find freedom in another. Academies were founded during the Enlightenment to copy and spread new ideas. Bismarck's welfare reforms in Germany were copied everywhere. It's true that state rivalry occasionally caused war, but democratic nation-states were never the cause of war in Europe. Resistance to their emergence by supranational empires was. Britain had a particular role in this European miracle. Not only was she a source of new ideas and technology and a prime example of constitutional monarchy and parliamentary government, but as a sovereign state... She had to use her independence regularly to deliver Europe from Habsburg, French, Napoleonic, German and Nazi imperialism. European democracy, as a result, owes its emergence and survival in very large measure to British sovereignty. In the struggle, for example, to remove the yoke of French Revolution and Napoleonic imperialism, a struggle that lasted a quarter of a century it was the stubbornness of British opposition that led to French defeat. The whole of Europe, meanwhile, had been conquered and reorganized by the Emperor of the French. No other power opposed him so persistently or did so with such success on land and sea as did Great Britain. And this was for the great benefit of Britain and Europe, as the younger Pitt said famously England has saved herself by her exertions. And will I trust to save Europe by her example? And she did. Her naval victories, plus the Peninsular Campaign, did much in themselves to defeat Napoleon. Moreover, without British subsidies, the great powers could never have afforded to arm the troops of the Fourth Coalition, who fought the Wars of Liberation in Germany and France in 1813 to 14. In short, without British help, Europe would have remained a continental enlightened despotism. In fact, the system of government which today is still favoured by the European Commission. In the struggle against Nazi Germany, Britain was once again called upon to face the (coughs) united Europe. And had we come to terms with Hitler in 1940, the fate of European democracy would have been sealed forever. Uh, If Britain had succumbed, America had no plans to intervene to save us. We would have been unable to provide a base for the aerial bombardment of Germany, for Arctic convoys or for a second front, all of which helped deflect Nazi power from Soviet Russia. Who knows under these circumstances whether Stalin could have defeated Hitler? And after America's victory over Japan, who knows whether she would have intervened in the war in Europe at all or if she did, on whose side? There have been rather, some rather sniffy comments uh, on 1940 and all that from the Remains side, particularly by Gordon Brown in an article in The Guardian. The Remains side really ought to know better. Britain's survival as an independent state in 1940 did more historically for democracy in Europe than anything ever accomplished by the European (laughs) Union. Since 1945, the European miracle has continued to a certain extent. European growth has been driven not by EU policy, but by the supply-side reforms of leaders such as Ludwig Erhard in West Germany, Jacques Rueff in France, Margaret Thatcher in Britain, and Gerhard Schroeder in Germany, reforms which were copied in many other countries. Most EU policies from the CAP and the CFP through the snake, the ERM, right up to the euro, have been detrimental to the European economy, and bad policy enforced across a continent by a centralised bureaucracy continues to be a policy for disaster. Now, one, <laughs> uh, one uh, definition of insanity is that you keep doing the same thing, but you expect a different outcome, however bad. This is what the European Union has done with regard to economic and monetary policy. The snake, well, the, the big attempt to achieve it between 1966 to 1975, saw the growth rate of Europe as a EU as a whole fall from 6.9% to minus 1.2%. So it was repeated in the experiment of the ERM between 1979 and 1993. The growth rate then fell from 4.7% to minus 1%. So then they brought in the Europe after the two spectacular failures. It was brought in uh, in 2001, and growth fell from 2% to 0%. It doesn't matter how awful the results and how blindingly obvious a failure these policies are, the insane leaders of the European Union just carry on regardless. But, if they go on like this, the new European superstate or empire will simply uh, come to an end all the sooner. And, but if we don't get out, we will take us down with it. What a contrast with the situation in the EU with that of the Great Britain tried and tested through centuries of independence when as a completely independent state Britain could pass laws to establish a unique banking system control her monarchs encourage an industrial revolution establish free trade expand democracy set up a welfare state including the NHS without ever having to ask the permission of a single foreign bureaucrat so how do we get in to our present situation, how do we get out of it? Students and journalists often seem to believe that we were forced to apply for membership of the EEC from 1961 onwards out of either geopolitical necessity or economic desperation. But this makes no sense. Ditching our victorious Commonwealth allies to join a combination of Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands... Italy, a NATO-occupied West Germany, a France that had just lost two vicious colonial wars in Vietnam and Algeria, and had just been saved from civil war by a constitutional coup d'etat by de Gaulle, made no sense at all geopolitically. These states were simply a bunch of losers who carried no weight at all internationally. De Gaulle himself, a supreme realist, simply could think of no rational reason why Britain should apply to join the EEC. And in his famous press conference, when he vetoed our application, he said, but you are a democracy. You have democratic institutions. You have cheap food from the Commonwealth and around the world. You are a world power. Why do you want to join the EEC? And nobody's been able to answer that question rationally. Likewise, although we certainly had economic problems, these economic problems were not such that EEC memberships could ho- hope to solve them. They concerned high overseas defence spending, military trade unions and high taxation. All of these problems were later solved through UK government action alone. The EEC budget at this time was very small. It was almost exclusively devoted to agriculture it had no means of helping the UK economy. Not that we were doing so badly in terms of growth. When Harold Macmillan won his general election in 1959, the annual British growth rate was almost 5%. The following year, as he planned his EEC application, it was almost 6%. In 1973, when we joined the EEC, the British national growth was a record 7.4%. And all these figures are from the Office of National Statistics. Today, poor George Osborne would die for such statistics. Growth thereafter in the EU was spurred, as I already pointed out, not by EU policy, but by individual countries copying the reforms of key supply-side reformers. EU policies, when they expanded beyond the CAP and CFP, uh which were both detrimental to EU, the UK economy, all these policies, the snake, the ERM, the euro, were all colossal failures. And they have led to the present economic crisis in which the EU finds itself. So EU membership has brought the UK no geopolitical or economic gains whatsoever. We joined the EU because the Tory party was captured by Harold Macmillan, a long-standing European Federalist who worked hand-in-glove with his close friend Jean Monnet to get Britain into the EEC. Indeed, just after Macmillan made his first application in 1961, the Long-Term Policies Committee, he said, he set up to advise the Cabinet, the Long-Term Policies Committee, as early as August 1961, reported to the Cabinet that with any luck, by the year 2000, Great Britain would no longer exist as an independent state. And the madly federalist British ambassador to France, Gladwin Jebb, who later on became Lord Gladwin and the star of the Liberal Party, Gladwin Jebb wrote elatedly from Paris to Dining Street in 1961 that if the application bid paid off, with any luck... Britain inside Europe would soon have less autonomy than Texas within the United States. Well, Britain didn't get in under Macmillan or Wilson. Once he took over from Macmillan as a torchbearer for European unity, he arranged for Douglas Hurd to make the Tory party a secret, a secret corporate member of Monet's Action Committee for the United States of Europe. And uh, according to François Duchesne, uh, Monet's deputy, uh, the Labour and Liberal parties subsequently followed suit. So all the major British political parties became secret corporate members of Monet's Action Committee for the United States of Europe. They all believed, as Michael Heseltine later put it in an interview with The Spectator, that one day the name Britain would be no more significant historically than the name Mercia. So now you know how we got ensnared in this scheme to create a European federal state aimed at ending our independence. You also know that the experiment has failed, and that today the EU is more or less a sinking ship. The question is simply how best to jump ship, we could do this either by joining EFTA and the EEA or we could negotiate a separate, different free trade deal by ourselves or we could unilaterally abolish EU tariffs with the rest of the world and trade with the EU and everybody else on WTO terms. Any of these strategies could work given the strength of the British economy and of the City of London. In response, the Remain camp make no positive case for the EU at all. It can't hold out a wonderful future in the EU since we already know that all it's an offer is a higher budget contribution, a more centralised economy and plans for an EU army. And who in Britain wants any of that? So Remain instead seeks to scare the voters with a big lie technique that Joseph Goebbels himself would be proud of. We're told that Brexit's Brexit—that That is to say, the re-establishment of a harmless, normally self-government democratic Britain would lead to world war, genocide, economic collapse, terrorist infiltration, isolation and much worse. But the curious thing is that the vast majority of countries in the world, which of course are not members of the EU don't seem to suffer from any of these problems at all. In fact, all those real democracies that are outside the EU are doing much better politically and economically than those nominal democracies that are inside it. And this is not a coincidence. Not so long ago, people who went around crying that the end of the world was nigh were locked up in lunatic asylums. Today they're allowed to live in Downing Street. (laughs) But we quite understand. In the mid-1990s, people in Holland apparently asked the EU, or complained to the EU, that the smell from their farms was becoming intolerable and asked the EU for a remedy. The response apparently was an EU directive laying down that the slurry of all farm animals had to smell the same. Farmers had to send vacuum sealed sashes of slurry to teams of olifactrometists or sniffers in Brussels to guarantee that the smell was in set limits. In this way (laughs) in this way the EU became the first body in history to legislate for the harmonisation of bullshit. And that is what we're experiencing. That is what we're experiencing today. My advice is to reject the bullshit, to vote instead for a free and independent Britain with a government directly elected by the people and responsible to the people through Parliament for the formulation and execution of all government policies. We should, again, become one of the world's great democracies alongside the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, (laughs) India and we should leave the failed, corrupt, bureaucratic and undemocratic union behind. So I advise you to choose freedom, choose democracy and choose Brexit on the 23rd of June. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you Alan for a typically challenging uh, presentation but also one based on enormous breadth of, of, of knowledge and of, of detail and I think we do have to thank you for raising the level of the debate which has been absolutely abysmal on both sides over the last few weeks. We have about half an hour if <laughs> Okay look I'll, I'll take uh, I think three questions at a time from different parts of, of, of the room but Please, uh, I mean, we have only got half an hour. I'd quite like them to be questions (laughs) rather than statements (laughs) and questions that Alan can answer. So I'll take you in the middle over there, uh, you here, and was there somebody from this side over here? And you from over here, yes, to start with.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Alan. Two points. Can you please nail the
1: money if we leave the single European Act? Is this going to imperil British business? And yes. Can you speak up a bit? No, I've got the. the
0: also, uh, would it British business? What's the cost of, of exit? We'll take three questions. Sorry.
1: And a brief quantification
2: of the euro laws in Britain. Uh, what pro- proportion of them are euro laws
0: now? I didn't get that. Did you? What was sorry? sorry what was that second question?
3: On the centre of legislation is, is, is EU inspired? especially coming
2: from and, and then there was one. Thank you, Alan. Wonderfully erudite, but hopelessly contradictory. Could you please clarify your view on two contradictions in what you're saying? The first is you called it a sinking ship. But in your talk, you obviously characterize it not as a sinking ship, as a dividing ship. The Eurozone countries on the one side and the non Eurozone countries on the other side. The Schengen countries on the one side and the non Schengen countries on the other side. And we're not in the Eurozone, we're not in Schengen. So all the, all the blame you pile on the Eurozone, it doesn't really apply to us. That seems to me to be hopelessly contradictory and not, therefore, an argument for Brexit. It's an argument for reforming the EU on the basis that we're already in the best bit of it. Could I, could, I, could I quickly point out to one, one, one contradiction also in your speech, a marvellously erudite lecture, and the best case for, for, not for Brexit really, but for reform that I've heard. But it, there's a hopeless contradiction in it, Alan, and that is this. On the one hand, you opened your lecture by saying, this is a political project to create a European political super state. Okay? And then ten minutes later, you listed a whole series of statistics Forty-nine percent of the French didn't want the Maastricht Treaty at all. Two two thirds, a majority of all French and all Dutch rejected the constitutional treaty. Whenever that was, two thousand and seven. Okay. Well, if there are huge national majorities rejecting that, surely we're not going towards a political superstate. It's not that. That is a false statement on your part. Slight change of pace with this question. Can I invite you to speculate as to what might happen if um, Brexit loses, perhaps by a narrow margin, God help us, but let's just say for the sake of argument it does, is the genie going to be put back in the bottle, or do you think uh, there is a chance uh, if the EU goes in the direction you think it will go in, as many people do, that we will have another chance of another, another referendum soon, and how could that happen? (laughs)
1: Sorry, yes, um, I I hope I remember all the questions. The first gentleman uh, wanted to know how we uh, repealed all the euro legislation. Was that the question?
0: The cost, it was the cost
1: as well. The cost of it. The cost of British British business. I don't think there'll be a cost, I think there'll be a benefit. After all, at present, only 6% of British companies actually export to the EU, 6%. Uh, that means that 94% of British companies don't, uh, and these 94% uh, of companies that don't, nonetheless, uh, are subject to EU legislation. It seems to me that if you export to other single markets in the world, if you export to America, or Japan, or China, or whatever, they've all got single markets, and wherever you export to, in Europe's just one place. Wherever you export to, you have to uh, abide by the regulations laid down by the single market you're exporting to. But uh, for the companies that are exporting to China or to America or to Japan, these companies abide by these regulations. Uh, That's perfectly all right. And in future, British companies that want to export to Europe, that's 6%, uh, can abide by the regulations uh, imposed by the European Union. But it's only the European Union, because it's got this political objective, that insists that the 100%, the other 94% of British companies also have to apply these regulations. So we can get rid of these regulations, which cost billions of pounds a year in red tape, and we can get rid of all these regulations for the 94% of companies that don't need them. And so that would not be a cost, that would be a benefit. How much of British legislation generally derives from the EU? I don't know if this was part of your question or not. There's an argument about this. Um, The German interior minister at one point said that 80% of all German law originated in Brussels. If that's true, then it's 80% here. Tony Blair's cabinet uh, said at one point it was 55%. Uh, Steve Hilton, uh, who was uh, David... Cameron's blue sky thinking adviser, who supports Brexit, uh, Hilton said in a seminar at Stanford University that when he was working in Number 10 Downing Street, Blair's chief assistant—not Blair, Cameron's chief assistant—that um, 40 40%, 40% of all government time was spent on EU legislation that 30% was spent on British legislation and 30% was spent on things that just happened, you know, unforeseen events. So it meant that most, uh, a plurality of time in the British, in, in number 10, was spent on the EU and its legislation. All this w- w- would stop. Uh, it would become a minor thing. It would only be something that would apply to the 6% of British companies that exported to Europe And the vast majority of British companies would be freed uh, from all this red tape. So I I don't think there are any costs. I think there are huge benefits. The second question was, oh, yes, Paul saw these contradictions. Um, Well, I I have a great admiration for Paul Madrell and his intellect, of course, but I I think he's muddled at this time. Um, What I would say is that you've got things wrong. Uh, You can't reform the EU, the EU is unreformable. David Cameron went in, his Bloomberg speech was full of a great panoply of reforms, none of which were actually acceded to. Uh, The European Union told Cameron that they were giving him next to nothing. They were faced with a major state in the Union (coughs) seceding, and they weren't prepared to treat reform seriously. So under these circumstances, if you go and say, look, I'm really, Britain is threatening to leave, you really have to reform, and they say, oh, bugger off, we're not interested, uh, the chances are you can't get serious reform. You mentioned there was a contradiction between all these votes and democratic referendum referendums, uh, seemingly uh, contradicting my view of the undemocratic nature, I suppose, of the EU, but, but Paul, look. When Denmark rejected the Maastricht Treaty under the Treaty of Rome, in 1956, the Foundation Treaty, it lays down that uh, subsequent treaties are amendments to the Treaty of Rome, and that if they're not passed unanimously, then these treaties fail. Denmark said no. What happened? Chancellor Kohl said. You are just a little people. You cannot damn the Rhine. You must vote again. Uh, When uh, the Irish voted against both the Nice and the Lisbon Treaty, they were told, "Mm -hmm, sorry, mate, you have to vote again. Uh, When France uh, voted uh, and the Dutch... This is the key thing. When the Constitutional Treaty... Uh, in 2005 was voted on by France and Holland and both countries rejected it, what happened? Chancellor Merkel wrote a letter which was leaked to the international press to all her fellow heads of government, which said, look, all we have to do is tweak the the language of the, the treaty by about 2%, keep all the legal obligations and then we'll force it through the parliament. So the French, the, the population voted no, and then the French politically elite rammed the same treaty called now the Lisbon Treaty, not the Constitutional Treaty, rammed it through the French parliament, the Dutch parliament, and all the other parliaments of Europe. The Irish said no, but they had to vote again twice. So the whole thing uh, was an exercise in saying we really don't care what the population of Europe thinks, we, the elite that runs the EU, are going to go ahead and create a United States of Europe, a, a super state. And so by the Lisbon Treaty, which was the same apart from 2%, which was the same as a constitutional treaty, the EU became a single legal entity. Uh, the Council of Ministers, which after, beforehand was a kind of independent Body of heads of government became part of the system from now on subject to the European Court of Justice and the the, the treaty the the, the Lisbon Treaty became in effect a constitution for the United States of Europe so all these democratic votes mean nothing they're just ignored if you vote once and you get it wrong hard luck you vote again until you get it right if you vote if you feel you can't do that to the French hard luck, will change it into a different treaty, which is 99% the same, and it will be rammed through Parliament by the government whips rather than by caring what the people think. So you're wrong. I'm right. The people people get ignored, the, the elites win, and Europe is undemocratic and unreformable, which is why we must get out. Cameron discovered, he boasted that he would reform Europe He still thinks he reformed Europe. The man's delusional. Uh, He thinks he's reformed Europe. He hasn't. Nothing's changed. Uh, And and instead of being able to point to real reforms, they're not talking about his package. They're they're merely talking about World War III, uh, you know, international... um, Poxes and God knows what else. I mean, the, the end of the world. I'm, I'm expecting either that the, well, Brexit will lead to the death of the firstborn or the invasion of the Martians. That's about all he's got left to say. So I think you're wrong. Uh, if, if they just, lose, just if we lose, well, we don't. If we do, then of course the the Tories did pass a referendum act, which means that if any more power goes from Britain to Brussels. There has to be a referendum by law. So if there is, is any more drift to Brussels, there'll be another referendum.
0: Okay. Well one question, the lady in blue. Just a, and and then the lady over here, you had a question, and then. Uh, All right. We'll have a lady. The lady here
3: in the front I've, as well. <laughs> okay. Well, I've had the privilege at, here at LSE to teach the exceedingly boring subject of EU law, and I have. Uh, finally, burst out into print with my "Suicide of Europe" book because it's I couldn't an take it.
1: Book, I, I recommend it. Oh, thank you. Uh,
3: but I would like to ask a question since you don't want statements. Otherwise, my heart is full of that too. Uh, could you explain why they have this obsession with secrecy and convoluted statement? The gentleman over there who thinks he can reform Europe like Dave also thinks in his illusory uh, uh, dreams uh, if you want to reform something at least you 've got to have the exact text. I have just submitted uh, requested the Foreign Office here asked under the Freedom of Information Act for an exact official copy of the Lisbon Treaty. And I got a reply saying, Madam, I'm sorry to tell you, but we haven't got one. <laughs> uh, now, uh, they said uh, Italy uh, is a depository of this treaty, and please go to Rome, where you know nothing works, and, and look for the Lisbon Treaty. Now, I mean, that to me is scandalous, isn't it?
1: Yes. Okay.
3: Over, over here. Hi, um, my question
2: is quite quick. Um, it relates to what we were saying before. If you think that they disregard anything that the people think, and the only thing that counts is the elite and the politicians and the governments, what makes you think that the results of this re- referendum will count?
0: And then- <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Sked, for your usual electric talk. I have a question for you to appeal to your sense as both a Briton and a Scot. I want to know what you think is going to happen if this country votes for Brexit, to leave the EU. Will we see Scotland request a second independence referendum? Could we see David Cameron preside over this country leaving not only the European Union, but Scotland leaving Britain? Uh, All right, well let me take these things in turn. Professor Frankospan uh, talked about the Foreign Office not having a copy of the Lisbon Treaty. I mean, it just, it, it just it sums up everything I think about the Foreign Office. Well, when the Maastricht Treaty was being debated, uh, we only got the text of that because Denmark had a referendum. They had to vote twice because of everything. But when they first had a referendum, the French Foreign Minister said, «Mon Dieu, it's a secret treaty. Why can't they have a referendum?» <laughs> But the the Danes insisted that they get a copy for the referendum debate. So the Maastricht Treaty, against all the uh, assumptions of the elite, had to be published in Danish. And once it was published in Danish, uh, friends of mine in the the Bruges Group and in the AFL said, ah, we'll translate it. So we translated it from Danish into English. Otherwise, the House of Commons was debating the Maastricht Treaty but no MP had ever seen it No MP had ever read it The government didn't understand it. I don't know if they had a copy of it. They didn't have a copy of the Lisbon Treaty. And once we translated it, we gave it to the Sunday Times, and the Sunday Times put through a weekend edition of the Times with a free copy of the Maastricht (laughs) Treaty to everyone who bought the Sunday Times. But if the Sunday Times hadn't published our translation of the Maastricht Treaty, the whole debate would have continued in Britain with everyone discussing a treaty that no one had ever seen. So, this is quite typical. And then Douglas Hurd was asked in the House of Commons, you know, Foreign Secretary, uh, you know, the Maastricht Treaty makes us all citizens of the European Union. What are the, and the text, when it was eventually came out, said we became citizens subject to all the obligations of citizenship. And William Cash, as someone, stood up and said to uh, Douglas Heard, what exactly are the obligations of citizenship? And had said, I don't know. <laughs> so this is the kind of state the EU gets us into with democracy. Or anything. Uh, the lady over there asked, but will the Brexit count? Well, I hope so. But then we had one of the Kinnock uh, family, the people who have done most out of the gravy train of any family in Europe, as far <laughs> as I know. Uh, Kinnocks son Stephen Kinnock, the MP for Ebervale wherever it is, said just yesterday that even if the electorate voted for Brexit, that didn't mean to say the House of Commons <laughs> would accept the result. I, I never ceased to be amazed by the democratic credentials of either the, uh, the, the in-crowd or, or, or the Kinnock family. So anyway, um, Stephen Kinnock MP is on record now as saying that, well a majority of MPs will be against Brexit. Just if a majority of the people are in favour of it, well, we might do something about it, we might not. Uh, I tweeted that if this is the case, the Queen should immediately arrest the government, uh, suspend Parliament, and if the Queen wasn't prepared to do it, the army should do it, because believe me, if we get Brexit... Uh, and the House of Commons says no to Brexit, there will be riots in the street leading to a popular insurrection. Uh, it's not going to go away. Finally, Scotland, my dear native Scotland, I live in the Highlands these days, I can only say, well, the majority of Scots don't want a second referendum. The majority of Scots are not in favour of independence. Uh, Scotland, <laughs> it's really quite funny... Um, the last, uh, when we had the referendum in Scotland, Alex Salmond couldn't say what currency an independent Scotland would have. Now, if an independent Scotland were to exist, uh, we don't know what currency it would have. It can't be accepted into the EU unless it's got its own central bank and its own central currency, which has been operating for three years, which wouldn't exist. It's supposed to have... Uh, a, a maximum deficit of 60% an independent Scotland's deficit would be 180% <laughs> Greece would, you nothing uh, on Greece I mean Scotland would be eviscerated um, and uh, again there's a five year waiting period you'd have to line up after Albania even if you were lied in because the Spanish would veto you because they don't want an, uh, a precedent for Catalonia going uh, its own way uh, but the Scots won't vote for it because uh, insofar as he got support at the referendum, it was because oil was supposed to be uh, continually flowing at $130 a barrel. Well, it's now near $30 a barrel and uh, the North Sea oil industry is closing down. And without oil in independent Scotland, is impossible, so it's not going to happen. Well, there are lots of
0: questions. I think I'll take... Gentleman in the blue shirt, there. Somebody on this side here, and you down in the far corner there.
2: <laughs> Hi there. Uh, you seem to attribute a lot of the ills of uh, Europe to the EU. Um, but would you not accept that a lot of the ills of the countries in the EU are homegrown, whether it's a banking crisis in Ireland or uh, Spain, and that? Gives rise to the unemployment in those countries, feckless government in Greece and uh, poor government in Italy and France. And if that's the case, so what has the EU done to these countries to make them as uh, you know, failing, failing states that they are? And, and t- putting aside the e- Eurozone uh, restrictions on uh, addressing those crises, what has it done in the first place to cause these countries to be in the position they're in? Okay. Oh, hello. Thank you for your talk. I just wanted to understand
0: your views on the short-to-midterm possible potential economic problems Britain may face in the event of a Brexit, and
2: whether, if we do enter a recession, whether that justifies a better future. Thank you. Um, Mrs Kett? Uh, It doesn't seem that immigration is your main concern for the case you made tonight by leaving. Um, And you mentioned the model of Norway and Switzerland, but they still have to accept the freedom of movement. And that seems to be one of the main concerns for quite a, a, a big number of the British people. So do you still think that the Norway or Switzerland model will be a model you would prefer Um, and the other thing is Nigel Farage the current leader of UKIP uh, the party you have founded is making this immigration case very loudly uh, uh, to say Um, so what do you think of his case how is he doing during this campaign
1: (laughs) my friend Nigel yes So, uh, three questions. Yes, all right. Um, the, the first question was, uh, are these crises homegrown? What is the EU? How is the EU responsible? Well, the, the EU is responsible for most of the devastation in Europe because it introduced a single currency. Uh, it, uh, and this single currency meant that banks were lending uh, money at low interest rates to all sorts of people who shouldn't have got it. Uh, and so you've got booms being developed by the generation of these uh, the spread of all this money. Uh, you've got France and Germany completely ignoring the conditions of the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, and Germany and France were the first countries to tear up uh, the conditions of the so-called Growth and Stability Pact. Uh, and the result was that this led to housing booms in Spain and Ireland... Uh, 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 and to all sorts of banking crises uh, in Greece. As you probably know, the, the money that the Greeks are paying just now uh, is not actually anything to do with the Greek economy. All the billions they're having to cut their own throats for to pay back is actually to save the German banks that loaned them money in the first place. So the bailout is not really of Greece. It's in fact the bailout of the German banks. Uh, But it's really just uh, the euro that caused a a completely unnatural uh, situation of money. Everybody thought that any country in Europe had the fiscal stability of Germany behind it, and so uh, money was given out of Kimber. Uh, uh, You know, anybody could borrow uh, billions, and the the, the result was uh, this dreadful situation which which arose. Uh, The EU then didn't know what to do about it. Uh, The individual countries couldn't do anything about it because the normal... Uh, uh, remedy would be devaluation. But once you're in the euro and you've given up your own currency, you can't devalue. So instead of devaluing your currency, which Greece or Italy or Spain or these countries would normally have done, uh, they had to go for internal deflation, which meant just uh, cuts and cuts and cuts and cuts and cuts. And the problem with that was you cut your economy back so much that you couldn't produce the growth that you were supposed to be seeking. So This is the conundrum uh, in Europe with the euro. There's no real solution. Now, to try and move a solution, they've broken all their own rules. Uh, You weren't supposed to be allowed to have bailouts under the Maastricht Treaty. Well, they broke that rule and they had a bailout. You weren't supposed to be able to have quantitative easing uh, by the European Central Bank. They broke that rule and you have quantitative easing. But it hasn't solved the crisis Italy, Greece and a few other countries, Finland, even, even France uh, could totter uh, at any moment so the whole crisis of the eurozone I'm afraid is still there but it's, it is created by the EU I mean uh, the individual governments and the individual banks and companies were of course to blame for taking all these loans but in fact the EU made the money available uh, that's the first thing. Brexit, um,
0: what was the... it? Was a, is it worth the short Oh, is it worth it? Well, I, I,
1: problems <laughs> I'm hoping there won't be a recession this after is Brexit. Somebody, is
0: somebody over
1: here who asked that question. Oh, it's so you? Sorry. <laughs> I, I'm hoping there won't be a recession after Brexit. I think it will be a huge liberation. I mean, after all, look what happened after we came out of the ERM. All the people who are brilliant in favour of remaining in just now Were the ones who wanted us in the ERM, who also wanted us to adopt the euro. (laughs) In fact, we're very lucky. If Tony Blair had been against the euro, Gordon Brown would have taken us in. Uh, But in any case, with the ERM, with the ERM, people like Ken Clarke and others, Major, uh, uh, the Treasury was actually telling the Prime Minister and uh, Major, who doesn't know much about anything, uh, (laughs) were telling him that he should actually go up past 17% in interest. We got to 17% in interest rates before we crashed out. But it was amazing the the the, the Europeans, the pro-Europeans, were prepared to have interest rates of 17% uh, for the British economy to try and keep us in the ERM. Well, it it was impossible. We crashed out. It cost us about £10 billion at the time. Nobody ever apologised for it. Uh, Major certainly didn't apologise for it. And um, uh, the the fact is that once we crashed out, the British economy recovered splendidly. We then went into a period of growing economic prosperity. Uh, And and, and everything was righted. And we became uh, absolutely one of the leading economic powers in Europe again. So I, I think the same thing will happen once we come out of the EU... Uh, far from being a disaster, I, I, I think the British economy will experience boom time. Uh, probably somebody will hold this against me if we come out and it goes disastrously <laughs> wrong, but there you go. Um, <laughs> As to immigration, well, of course, I, I spent my life in London and teaching at the LSE, so. I'm used to being surrounded by very bright people from all over the world and all over Europe, and it's a wonderful uh, environment, and uh, I I don't have anything against it. Uh, On the other hand, uh, people living in the north of England who have got uh, very bad uh, paying jobs uh, are discovering now that immigration has gone out of control. I, I don't know what the ideal figure for immigration is, whether the market should set it I I think arbitrary figures are probably impossible but it's certainly clear with a a third of a million people coming in every year the population of a town the size of Oxford coming into this country every year and uh, the prognostication that the British population will reach 75, 80 million by 2030, 2050 that, uh, you know, we can't cope uh, people are finding that the GP surgery lists are being closed, that schools are uh, at a breaking point, infrastructures are at breaking, breaking point. Um, you know, there's endless complaints that among the lower paid, wages are being depressed. The real point in immigration, I think, is not how far do you want to put it down, but it'll have to be controlled somehow. The real point is, you say to the end camp, how high are you prepared to tolerate it? Supposing it goes up to half a billion a year. Supposing it goes up to a billion a year. Because after all, the economies of Europe are not very bright. Uh, the, the migration crisis in the Middle East and Africa is going to get worse. How, how high is the present government, Theresa May or David Cameron, how high a figure are they prepared to tolerate? That I would think is a key question in the immigration debate. Now it becomes clear that the, 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 the future from Europe is going to be rather strange because we 've got to the stage where one point two or immigrants have gone into Germany. Uh, a large proportion of these will event and elsewhere will eventually get EU citizenship. Uh, five or ten years down the line, they'll all be eligible to come in uh, into the United Kingdom if we're still in the European Union through the principle of freedom of movement. Now, according to an article in the Guardian, 400,000 of that 1.2 million have not yet applied for asylum, and the German government doesn't know who these people are and doesn't know where they've come from. If Turkey comes in and you get another 80 million people in the queue, uh, Turkey is a flourishing uh, forgery industry and passports and a a porous border with uh, the Islamic Caliphate. If you get 80 million Turks, and whoever counts as Turks with a passport, uh, with the ability to come into anywhere in Europe, uh, the European Union has no way of tracking them. Uh, it's been trying to get a supercomputer going, saying who goes into each state inside the Schengen area, but they haven't got one. Uh, and so that's another problem. Handelsblatt, the German financial newspaper, today, today, Handelsblatt uh, quoted the German government as saying that in the first three months of this year, 70,000 criminal acts had been committed by asylum seekers in Germany in the first three months of this year 70,000 criminal acts have been committed by asylum seekers in Germany well these criminals uh, I don't know what's going to happen to them in Germany but EU criminals can't be stopped from coming into the United Kingdom so there is a problem I mean I'm very sensitive about immigration as I say because you know I've lived a cosmopolitan, liberal lifestyle in the in LSE and in London, and all my prejudices and hackles rise uh, at criticism of immigrants. But there's no getting away from the fact that immigration is now out of control; that there are serious social problems, and that the situation in Europe, particularly in Germany, and with this prospect of Turkey. Uh, being given free access or even accelerated membership uh, this does raise huge, serious questions of economy, of culture, of crime uh, that, you know, you, you, you can't sweep under the carpet and it, it is, much as I'm hesitant to say, it, it is a very legitimate part of the Brexit debate. I don't want to mention Farage my views on Farage are well known. Um, he and I are <laughs> not friends. Uh, so um, I think I've said enough.
0: Well, look, I, I know that lots of people want to ask more questions, but uh, we have been asked to, to leave the, the uh, the lecture theatre by 8 o'clock, so I'm afraid I, I can't take any more questions, but it's a reflection of how stimulating Alan's lecture was that so many people want to ask questions. So, Alan, I'd like to thank you again, and maybe we'll invite you back in the